All right, good morning everybody. How are we? It's great to see you right here in this room. Great to see you in your living room or wherever you're watching in the world. And I want to say hello to Paula Arias, uh, who's watching online. So let's give our online congregation a hand. Yeah. So we're starting a brand new Christmas series today, and it's kind of based on the premise that throughout human history, there are certain events that triggered the way the world would work. And all of these events kind of changed everything, and they changed the way that human beings would view themselves and view the world around them. Each of them started when one person uh, in, uh, made one decision in one moment, and everything changed. A priest nailed his 95 thesis to the door of the All Saints Church, and it sparked the Protestant Revolution and everything changed. An astronomer began to champion the idea that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe and everything changed. An African-American woman kept her seat on the bus and it gave birth to the civil rights movement and everything changed. A Catholic nun refused to believe that one person couldn't do something about poverty and suffering in the world and everything changed. And their decision not only changed themselves, but it also changed the millions of people who would be affected by their choice. Now, when you come to the Christmas story, there are similar moments where people are faced with decisions that they would make, and the decisions that they make not only shaped the story itself, but the world that we actually live in. So we are doing this series called In One Moment, and we're looking at four moments in time that changed everything. Four moments in time that not only shaped the Christmas story, but shaped our lives today. And so what we're going to see here is that uh, Christmas and the Christmas story is not something that happened just back then. It's something that can happen now if we let it. Because God created a moment that changed everything. And the question that we're going to be asking ourselves throughout this series is, will it change you? Will it change you? Because we're going to see this is not an ancient text that we kind of look at at a distance, but we are going to find ourselves in each narrative and decide how God is going to shape our lives going forward as a people. So if you have a Bible with pages that turn or a screen that you scroll, go ahead and get to Genesis chapter 2. If you have, that's the first book in the Bible, by the way, if you didn't know that. And if you have the ZCC app, I want to encourage you to open that up. There's a lot of tools in there, all the scriptures there, the points are in there, help you get a little bit more out of our time together today. So I get it. Most people don't start the Christmas story in the first book of the Bible. All right. We all know that if you're going to tell the Christmas story, you've got to go to the Gospels where an angel appeared to a virgin named Mary and told her something that was going to happen, and, and we're going to get there. But what I want to do first is I want to get back to the moment that actually created Christmas. See, Christmas is all about the coming of a Savior, but the question that we have to ask ourselves when we talk about the coming of a Savior is, why do we need a Savior in the first place? See, in one moment, there was paradise, if you know the story of the Bible, and in another moment, paradise was lost. Everything that was beautiful, everything that was joyful, everything that was perfect had now become a place that was full of fear and mistrust and, and separation. And those decisions got passed on down to us, and they affect us today in our world. So we live in a world full of poverty, where millions of people don't have food to eat or clean water to drink. 
We, we live in a world of injustice where the weak and vulnerable are exploited by the rich and the powerful. We live in a world of corruption where governments and politicians care more about their own agenda and their own power and their own influence than they do about the people that they are serving. We live in a world that's full of evil where pedophiles and traffickers are preying on the young and the innocent. And then we live in a world of us with broken marriages, estranged relationship, wayward children, selfish ambition. We all have our own story. And so this is not a that was then, this is a this is now world in need of a savior. And this is why we tell this story. And so I want to start, uh, as we go through this uh, In One Moment series, I want to start right here with a moment of deception. A moment of deception. How did we get here? Where did this all start? Now, if you read in the first couple chapters of the book of Genesis, you'll see that God had created everything out of nothing, and God stood back and he looked at everything he had created, and it says in Genesis chapter 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Everything was up and to the right. And then God decided he's going to take the man and the woman and he's going to put them in a the garden. The man we're going to refer to as Adam, the woman we're going to refer to as Eve, and that, those names all come out later in the story, but this is what happens. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, here's something I want you to know. He says, you're free to eat from, say that word, any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will what? surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. So here we have Adam and Eve. Uh, They're in paradise. They're perfectly happy. They're completely in love. They're wonderfully protected and cared for. Uh, The text says that they were naked. You say, well, why, why is that naked thing in there? It's emphasizing the freedom from fear and exploitation. Everything was good. Nobody had to guard themselves against anything. He didn't worry about his gut and she didn't worry about her thighs. Okay? I mean, she loved to watch Sports Center and he loved to window shop. She was loved and he was respected. There was no sin around. They were in paradise. Everything was perfect. And then, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals of the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, we know that from uh, other passages of Scripture, the serpent is just not a serpent. In Revelation uh, 12, 9, we see that the uh, Satan himself is referred to as that ancient serpent. So we know that the evil one, Satan, the devil, is actually behind the movement of the serpent here. And it says that he was crafty. In fact, uh, his shrewdness is set in contrast to her innocence. There's actually a Hebrew wordplay here. Look at it. She was naked, a rumen is the Hebrew word, and he was crafty, a room. So he was going to use his craftiness to seduce her and to take advantage of her innocence. 
And you might be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. How in the world could Eve be deceived by a serpent? Because we oftentimes, when we hear the story, read the story, we think, we think of the serpent, and we're like, like fangs, and it's like talking like, I, you don't know. You know, like, I wouldn't be deceived by that, but I don't think it was that kind of a serpent. I think it looked more like this. <laughs> I'm serious, you know, because you'll see later that serpents didn't always crawl around on their belly. I believe in the garden that serpent actually walked. Okay, and you know, the, the subtlety, the cleverness of somebody coming up and, and kind of getting you to believe something that wasn't true, it's probably going to be a little bit more like that. Now, the fact that Satan came as a serpent reminds us that deception comes in disguise. Hear that. It's, it's always prettier it's always more seductive than what you see on the surface. So when temptation comes along, it always looks good on the surface. But when you begin to play with it, it's going to become destructive. Now, what's really interesting to me is that Eve didn't seem to be surprised that this serpent was talking to her. Which leads me to believe, and this is certainly within the realm of possibility before all uh, hell broke loose, if you will... Um, that animals talked. I think it's completely possible that animals used to talk and that's why she's not going, whoa, a serpent is talking to me. No, she just, before she knows it, she's just engaged in the conversation. And so the enemy is coming in and he's beginning to seduce her. And here's where deception begins. Deception begins by questioning God's word because that's exactly what the serpent did. Because did God say that they couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? No, no, no. He, he, he didn't say that at all. If you look back to God's command in Genesis 2, 16, 17, what he said is that you can eat from any tree but what? One. Just one. Probably thousands of trees. Just don't eat from this one. But Satan's ploy was to cast doubt on God's word. Let's just get you guessing about what God's word actually said. So now she's in the conversation. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not, uh-oh, touch it or you will die. Huh, interesting little thing she does there. Not only did the serpent distort God's command, so did Eve. They're both guilty here, and nobody really knows why uh, she lost the clarity of God's word. The clarity of God's command was, this is the deal. And had she retained the clarity of God's word, she could have used that to refute the temptation of the serpent, but she didn't. You know who did? Jesus. When you see Jesus in the wilderness and Satan came three times, tried to tempt him to sin against God, three times Jesus used the word of God to refute him. And by the way, this is one of the reasons why God put this text here for us to read. Is that so we would know when we know the word of God, when we know the clarity of the word of God, it's going to enable us to take our stand against the temptation of the evil one. But you've got to know it. So Eve, she doesn't 
stay clear on God's word. And she actually alters God's command in three ways. Check it out. Number one, she narrowed God's provision. Because God said, you're free to eat from what? Any tree in the garden. Eve said, we may eat from the trees in the garden. She's kind of narrowing it. The second thing that she did, she added to the command. God said, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve added, you must not touch it. God never said that. She added that. The third thing that she did, she minimized the consequences. God said, for when you eat it, you will what? Surely die. Eve said, or you will die. Not quite the same emphasis. You say, well, that's just a nuance, isn't it? Exactly. It's just a nuance. And that's where we go wrong. Anytime we begin to nuance the Word of God, we can change it just a little bit, change the meaning just a little bit, then we can change our behavior just a little bit. Instead of maintaining the clarity of God's Word, we want to shift it, we want to add to it, we want to minimize it, and then we can live the way that we want to live. And now that Satan kind of has her off balance, he goes for the jugular. And here's what he says. He says, you will not certainly die. Wow. Absolute denial. And by the way, that's the lie that has been perpetuated on humanity from that moment into this very moment. And that is, there is no penalty for sin. You can do whatever you want because you're your own person, you're your own God, you're in charge, you're not accountable to anyone. And there's no penalty for anything that you would want to do. The reality is there is a penalty for sin. We've all experienced the penalty and the consequences of sin. And this is one of the reasons why, this is the reason why we needed God to send a Savior because there is a penalty. We've got to embrace and understand that. But the enemy, he's wanting to deceive. Here's what he says. He kind of throws this idea out. He says, no, 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 here's the real deal. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, the serpent started with attacking God's word, but then he moved on to challenging God's integrity. This is how deception grows. Deception increases by doubting God's character. And what's really fascinating here, I don't know if you're kind of picking up on it, uh, did God give the original command for a good reason? Be because the serpent is basically casting doubt on God's motive on giving the command. He he he's saying, oh, God didn't, didn't give you that command because he was good and he, he wanted to protect you from the consequences of sin. No, no, no. The reason God gave that command is because he wants to withhold something good for you and keep it for himself because God is possessive and jealous. You say, well, that wouldn't happen to me. And you kind of look at that and you go, wait, whoa, whoa. How in the world could Eve go from living under the, the protective hand of her good and loving creator to move to a place where all of a sudden she is seduced into believing that uh, God is not loving and good and caring and protective. He's, re he's rather possessive and jealous and, 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 and wants everything for himself. How's that even possible? 
The same way that you were deceived into believing that if you reach out to that old friend, that old boyfriend on Facebook, it's not going to affect your marriage at all. The, the, the same way that you think, well, a little bit of porn isn't going to hurt me that much. The same way that you are tempted to believe and deceived into believing, you know what, I'm really serious with my boyfriend, and so actually beginning a sexual relationship before marriage would probably help us to discover intimacy better, and uh, we would probably grow together in our relationship. The same way that you could be deceived into believing that instead of telling the truth to somebody, you're going to tell them a lie because it'll spare them of the pain. The same way that you can be deceived into believing, oh, I'm a little bit confused about my sexuality, so I must be gay, or probably need to change my gender. It's a different situation, but it's the same old story, guys. And here's the, here's the, here's the deal. Ignoring God's word and doubting God's character will lead to our deception. You start throwing out God's word, you start throwing out the truth, you start throwing out God's will for your life, you start believing that God is trying to withhold from you, that, he, that any command or any word that he's given you is not for your good, it's because God doesn't want you to have fun, you're going to be deceived. And this is exactly what happened to Eve. So she reaches for the forbidden fruit, she eats it, and in that moment, the world changed forever. Everything went downhill. And the need for a Savior was born. Here's how it played out. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. And, uh, uh, and a lot of theologians believe the Hebrew there who was with her meant he was standing right there with her watching everything happen, but he did nothing about it. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They sewed fig leaves together. Everybody knows that they're going to be out in the fall. That was a bad, bad idea. But this is what they did. And you notice that Eve was deceived and she ate, but Adam ate with eyes wide open. He knew what he was doing. And he was held accountable because he was the leader. And after they ate, everything changed. Their eyes were open, but not to divine enlightenment. Satan's promise didn't come true. It never does. All that they had was fear and mistrust and separation. And then they did the craziest thing. They tried to hide from God. You see, deception results in separation from God. You're, you're never going to get closer to God by falling to temptation. Satan is never going to lead you there. And the great irony here is that the very thing they thought was going to make them closer to God actually alienated them from God. His lie never works in our favor. But there's always redemption. This is always the story of Christmas. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, 
I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And, and I just want to focus on that question right there. Where are you? See, this is what God asked Adam. But you're like, well, isn't God God? Doesn't he know? Oh, oh yeah. See, this wasn't an inquiry about physical location. This was an invitation to spiritual disclosure. He wanted Adam to come clean and talk about where he was in relationship to God. And this is what I love about the story. This is what I love about God is that even when we walk away, even when we're disobedient, even when we break God's command, even when we disregard everything about the character of God, God always pursues us with his love. He, he's not going to let our behavior keep him from moving toward us in a loving, loving fashion. And so he's, he's reaching out to Adam. He's inviting Adam in. And he's honestly, he's looking for a confession. But it's not coming too quickly. Here, the man said, the woman you put here with me. Any husband ever said that? Oh, yeah. It wasn't me. It was her. You know, I mean, we've been blaming our wives ever since the fall, okay? The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So there's a lot of blame going on. You know, everybody's kind of pointing fingers everywhere. And by the way, this is one of the consequences of the moment of deception that has moved all the way down into our lives. Nobody wants to take responsibility for their choices, right? It, it's way easier to point our finger somewhere else, to play the victim, to say, well, it's, it's their fault. Because if they wouldn't have done that, then I wouldn't have done this. And so we want to push it off on everybody else. But what God is looking for from Adam and Eve and from every human being who is stained with sin and guilt is an honest and open confession. Because until we come to God and we own our guilt and, and sin and shame, God can't do anything with it. If we're going to say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't, need, I don't, have any, I don't need God for any of that, then we remain alienated from him. But God is pursuing us in this way. And so God is going to address their sin. He's going to address their guilt. But the first thing he's going to do as a righteous God is he's going to declare a righteous judgment on what has just taken place in the garden. First, on the serpent and Satan, okay? So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly. See, they, he didn't used to crawl on his belly. He walked like a gecko, all right? Um, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, you know, friction between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, there's a lot going on here in Genesis 15. It's the ongoing struggle between good and evil. It's the ongoing struggle between uh, uh, Satan and humankind. 
And verse 15 is actually known as the Proto-Evangelium. Uh, it's two words. Proto means first. And Evangelium, it means good news. So it's the first good news. It's the first mention of the coming of a Savior. So when it says that uh, the serpent is going to uh, bruise the heel of humanity, it's a reference to bruising the heel of Jesus in his death. He's going to be a part of causing the death of Jesus. But Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent, which means through his death and resurrection, he is going to have ultimate victory and he's going to break the power of sin and guilt and death and hell. And ultimately, Jesus is victorious. This is the first mention. This is the genesis of the Christmas story. It all begins right here. So then he moves to Adam and to Eve. He says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. You will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat all the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So everything that is happening in our world right now, pain in childbirth. And most of you women could go, just stop right there. That's plenty. Because, you know, before, you guys could have been here outpatient. You'd go in, there's no pills, there's no anesthesia, there's no, what's the thing they stick in your spine? What is it? There's no, you don't need an epidural. You just go in, you're just like, oh, oh baby, okay, fine. Let's go home. That's how it would have been. But no, Eve, women wanting to control men, men dominating women, men hating their jobs but just having to do it, economic downturns, fractured relationships, every conflict, struggle, and evil is the result of this moment of deception. It all started right here. And death. You are from dust and to dust you will return. And it's not just a physical death, it's a spiritual death. For Adam and Eve and for us, for you and me. The consequences of these choices kind of got down into our lives. And if you fast forward into the New Testament in Romans chapter 5, it links the sin of Adam and the consequences of that sin uh, to all of humanity. This is what the writer Paul said. He said, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Was no sin before. Adam's sin brought death. Yep. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. Now, you're going to have to get your heads around this for just a second because what I'm going to tell you is that you were sinning in the garden. You know, I wasn't there. This is what's called federal headship. 
That's what theologians call that. That means that Adam was, was the representative of humanity. That when he was sinning, all of humanity was sinning with him because we would have all done the same thing if we were in that situation. And so when he sinned, Adam passed on to every human being that was born after him a sin nature. Okay? A sin nature means you are born with the propensity toward rebellion. You are born with the propensity to disobey God's word. You're born with a propensity toward self-preservation and selfishness. That's just what we have. The sin nature is what separates us from God, and the sin nature is what actually causes us to sin. The sin nature is what takes a beautiful, joyful, little baby, little bundle of joy and turns them into a terrible two-year-old. <laughs> you see, nobody has to teach a child how to have a tantrum. It's in their nature. It's just a part of them. It's going to come out. Which is why children need to be taught God's word. Which is why children need to be discipled. Because children, this next generation, they have a sin nature. And they need to come and to know uh, a relationship with Jesus so that they can be changed. And they can invest in the next generation. Because we live in a broken and a fallen world in desperate need of a savior. So we have to move in this direction. So because of Adam's sin, all humanity is condemned to physical and spiritual death. But as God would have it, and as God always does it, there's mercy. So the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. You kind of got to ask yourself the question, well, why did God banish them? I mean, why did he do that? He did it for their own good. Because he didn't want them to make their way to the tree of life and eat from that tree and live forever in a state of brokenness, separation, fear, and mistrust. God had a grander vision. They covered their guilt and shame, or at least they tried with fig leaves, didn't work. You fast forward down into our lives, we do the same thing. We try to cover our guilt and our shame and our sin with religion, with good works, with addiction, with money, with possessions, with power. Doesn't work. We're still exposed. So God clothed them with the skin of an animal. And you know what that meant? Something had to die. An innocent animal had to be slaughtered to get their skin. And Adam and Eve were covered. And that sacrificial death of that animal 
foreshadowed the sacrificial death of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would take away the sin of the world. And his blood would not only cover sin uh, temporarily, but it would cover it and remove it eternally. That is the good news because God provides salvation from the moment of deception. We're never left without hope. So, back to Romans. Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone who believes. This is, this is the good news. So here we are today, banished, if you will, from the garden. There is a new garden that will be created in the new heaven and the new earth. But the curse of sin is still in full swing. We live in a fallen world that is in desperate need of redemption. But if you know Jesus, okay, there's hope. Because Jesus, through his death and resurrection, he broke the power of the curse of sin and death. And if you know Jesus one day, you're either going to go to be with him when you pass or he's going to come and be with us when he returns. Either way, we will be fully delivered from the power of sin and death. That is the hopeful thing. Yeah. See, Adam and Eve's moment of, 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 de of deception and their decision is what created Christmas. And when they sinned, God redeemed that moment by providing the promise of a Savior. And this changes everything. But the question is, will it change you? Will you allow this story to change you? Will you allow the truth of this story to penetrate your heart, to trust in God's goodness, to believe in God's word, to live in God's promise? You can. Because God is kind of asking you this question right now. He, he's asking, where are you? And he's asking this of two groups of people. He, he's asking this of the, of the person who is a follower of Jesus. You know him as your Savior. But maybe you've drifted. Or maybe you're, you're not really following God's word. Or, or maybe you're not believing in God's goodness. And God is basically saying, I know where you are, but will you own where you are? And will you move toward me? Will, will you live in my promise? Will you recommit yourself to me as your Savior and your leader? Or maybe uh, you're watching or maybe you came into this room today and you don't know Jesus at all. You don't, you don't have this, this hope. You're not even familiar with this part of the Christmas story, but I can tell you this part of the Christmas story can change you because God is asking you the same question. Where are you? And God knows your heart. He knows exactly where you are. He's not asking for uh, an identification of your physical proximity. He's saying, will you be honest about your sin and about your guilt? Will you openly admit that you are separated from me so that I can move into your life and I can cover you? I can provide salvation and eternal life. And if you want that, you just, 
with a genuine heart, you pray a simple prayer. You say, Jesus, number one, I own it. I own my guilt, my sin, my shame. Nobody else is responsible. It's on me. Number two, you say, I stop. I stop trying to cover up my guilt, my sin, my shame with all the other things that I've always tried throughout my life to make life work. And I admit that it's only through your sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection that is going to grant me forgiveness. And then number three, I choose. I choose you as the Savior of my sin and the leader of my life. Jesus, I give you my life. And if you prayed that prayer with a genuine heart, I want to welcome you to the family of God. Can we welcome everybody who made that decision? If you made that decision, I want to encourage you to go to zarephath.org uh, and push that little button that says, My Decision. Let us know that was your step. We're going to help you with your next step. This is going to be the best Christmas you've ever, ever had because now you know Jesus as the true Savior who came to save not only the world, but you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for revealing yourself in this story. Thank you that you are on every page of the Scripture, showing up, revealing your power, revealing your goodness, revealing your salvation. It runs from Genesis to Revelation. Thank you for those who just made this decision to follow you, to claim you as Savior and leader of their life. For all of us, God, we want to take one step closer. We want to acknowledge that you are worthy. That when we stand back and we wonder who could lead us to this place, who could save the world, who could provide salvation, who could bring hope and restoration? Who could take a broken humanity and make them a living church of God? A people called by your name, ready to worship you throughout all eternity, ready to fall down and acknowledge that you and only you are worthy. God, this is our declaration, and we declare it in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.